0: In February of 2014, two divers perished while cave diving, a huge cave system in Norway. Authorities wanted to recover the bodies but ultimately determined that it was too dangerous. Four friends of the late men go against the authorities' decision and seven weeks later they decide to descend into the dark and glacial waters. What happened to the two divers who died? And what was the fate of the four friends? Find out on this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Hi everyone, I'm your host Alex and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. This week is a highly requested episode and it's also the season one finale. I can't believe we're already here, so, I'm going to be taking a couple weeks break in between Season 1 and Season 2, but if you'd like exclusive updates on what I'm doing behind the scenes, you can sign up for our Patreon for only $3 a month. When you sign up to become a patron, not only do you get exclusive updates, but you also get a shout-out at the end of the next episode, discounts on merchandise, and more. Alright, enough self-advertising, let's go ahead and jump into the episode, but just as a heads up, I'm probably going to mispronounce these names and locations, but I'm going to try my best. At the end of the Pleurdalen Valley in central Norway, a 114-foot or 35-meter-wide river rises abruptly out of the ground. If you dive into this strange pond, known as the Pleura, and swim underground for about 1,640 feet or half a kilometer, you will emerge into a long, colorful cave. Norwegian cave divers frequent this location and have even left guidelines here But it can be a dangerous dive due to the length, depth, and a few narrow passages. In February of 2014, five Finnish men, K, Patrick, Jari H, Vesa, and Jari U, planned to go diving here. They arrived past midnight after a 15-hour drive through Finland, Sweden, and Norway. With them, they pulled a trailer full of gear, a snowmobile, underwater scooters, a few dozen large diving cylinders, and various smaller equipment. It was past one in the morning on February 6, 2014, when they finally arrived where the Pleura Cave was located. Some of the men knew each other well, but everyone at least knew each other a little bit, since although technical diving is quite popular in Finland, the cave diving community had always remained quite small due to the risks associated with the hobby. Of the five men, Kai Kankanen and Patrick Gronquist were the most experienced divers of the group. It was them who had discovered the connection between the two known entrances of the Pleura Cave. The plan of the five men was to conduct only the second traverse between the two entrances and their planned dive was the first one in this direction. The fact that the cave reaches a depth of over 427 feet, or 130 meters, makes the dive extremely challenging, while several corridors and the cold water add to the difficulty. The group was to descend into the cave through an entrance located in a pond and dive a distance of almost 6,700 feet, or 2,036 meters, to the other entrance, situated roughly 330 feet, or 100 meters, below the surface of the earth, in a dry but difficult-to-reach cave called Steineguflegit. The dive ahead was so difficult that perhaps no more than a dozen Finnish cave divers would have dared to undertake it. The group had laid out details of the dive during their long drive. First, they would leave their car at one entrance, dive through the cave system, where they would leave their equipment at the end, spend the night at a local farm, return the next day, and dive back towards the entrance back to where they left their car. After their long 15-hour drive, with the exception of one man who went to sleep immediately, they each had a beer before going to bed. On the eve of a long dive, it's inadvisable to drink more. The group had also agreed not to get up until 8 a.m. as it was important to rest well before a long dive. On the morning of February 6, it was about 27 degrees Fahrenheit or negative three degrees Celsius. The sun did not break above the fells until nine in the morning, and there would be no more than seven hours of daylight, but the day would be bright. Two men from the group went to leave equipment at the finish point so that all five men could change into dry clothes before returning back to the farm, and the other two were left with the task of cutting a hole in the ice with a chainsaw. The ice was dozens of centimeters thick, and the guide bar of the chainsaw was barely long enough to penetrate it. As water sprinkled over the ice, the thin layer of snow covering it melted, revealing a spectacular sight. It was possible to view the rocky bottom of the pond through the crystal-clear water. The rocks were well-defined, as if seen through a gigantic magnifying glass. Footage shot by Patrick show how he and Jari H. prepared for the dive. They assembled their gear routinely, as if they were about to go fishing. They only exchanged a couple of words while helping each other with their gear. Patrick then pointed his camcorder at Jari H., who was sitting on a snowy bank of the pond in full preparedness. What do you think, Patrick asks. Should we go or should we wait? Jari H. responds by gesturing down with his right hand. I agree, Patrick says. It's beautiful. The river flows quietly between the fells. The sun is shining, only light clouds cover the sky, and the camcorder continues to roll. Patrick points his camera at the hole of the ice Damn how clear it is," he says. The water was indeed remarkably clear, and as Jari H. dived under the ice, Patrick stood by the hole, holding his camcorder. The thick ice glimmered like a turquoise crystal. In a report about the course of events presented to the Finnish Divers Association, the survivors described this part of the dive as follows. The first team starts to make a hole in the ice at the pleura start site while the second team transports the change of clothes and gear to Steineglufleget, the end point. The second team returns to the pleura start site and helps the first team begin their dive. Jari H and Patrick were preparing to take off below the ice as Jari Yu and Kai arrived. Vesa had returned to the farm to fetch his dry suit and Kai aimed his camcorder at the hole. Patrick and Jari H were, quote, about to take off towards Steinegluflaget, they'll rest in the water for a while, end quote, he says into the camcorder. Below the ice, Patrick and Jari H. proceeded towards the entrance of the cave. They both used their underwater scooter to move faster and to conserve their strength. These Finnish divers were all experienced technical divers and certified CCR full cave divers. Instead of open-circuit equipment, they dived with closed-circuit equipment, or rebreathers. If you remember this from our Dave Shaw episode, open-circuit systems don't recycle air at all. But rebreathers, which are a closed-circuit system, recycle some or all of the diver's air. Because rebreathers can recycle air, divers need fewer gas cylinders and can fit through smaller openings and stay submerged notably longer than their open-circuit counterparts. The divers had come up with a bailout, or reserve gas strategy. They carried a third rebreather system and open-circuit gas cylinders to cope with any possible failure of their primary equipment. They had estimated that their dive would last five hours. Diving through the underwater entrance to the Pleura Cave, the daylight fades quickly. Footage of the dive shows how endless strips of limestone line the walls and ceiling of the cave. Divers must be aware of any sharp limestone lying on the floor because a tear in a dry suit could be fatal in this 35 degree Fahrenheit or 2 degree Celsius water. The cave descends gradually to a depth of 112 feet or 34 meters over the first 1,640 feet or 500 meters before ascending briefly to an 820-foot, or 250-meter long, barren chamber filled only partly with water. After this air chamber, the cave begins to descend steeply, first reaching a depth of about 200 feet, or 60 meters, then 328 feet, or 100 meters, and then finally 427 feet, or 130 meters. I know this is a lot of different numbers, and it's kind of hard to visualize in an audio podcast, so make sure you head over to our Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, where I'm going to be sharing a couple different maps of the cave, as well as some other relevant photos and videos. Only very experienced cave divers should venture so deep. Formed by water erosion, these openings are usually only very narrow clefts, that require divers to use their hands to edge their way through. All around are treacherous side passages. As Patrick and Jari H. approached the deepest section of the cave, they turned off their underwater scooters and admired the cave. At a depth of 427 feet or 130 meters, Patrick showed Jari H. the deepest point of the cave. Patrick was one of the people that had discovered the connection between the two entrances, so this was actually not his first time here, but it was Jari H's first time. While Patrick and Jari H stopped so Jari could admire the cave, they saw a guideline that was attached to a round plate with two arrows pointing in the opposite direction. But Patrick knew what the sign was. Him and Kai had installed this in the previous fall. Overall, the cave remains below the depth of 328 feet, or 100 meters, for a total of 1,312 feet, or 400 meters. At this point, Patrick and Jari H had gone over 3,280 feet, or one kilometer, from the entrance. It would not be long before they reached their finish line. Patrick had agreed with Jari H that he would practice switching between the bailout rebreather in the deep. The switch was a success, and he used his reverse system for just a few minutes before switching back. The passage began to ascend, and at one point, it makes almost a 90-degree turn to the right while continuing to ascend. It was a narrow section, but not the narrowest of the route. Patrick went first, squeezing through the narrow opening, But then realized the light of Jari H was nowhere to be seen. He turned around and waited. Patrick describes, "Then I saw Jari waving his light up and down." Waving your light up and down is a sign that divers use to indicate distress. Patrick instantly turned back. They were now positioned face to face in this narrow passage and Jari H. asked Patrick to detach one of his large bailout cylinders, which was apparently in the way. It was difficult to detach, but Patrick moved his scooter out of the way. Patrick says, quote, Jari kept yelling at me to come back. I shouted back that I wouldn't be more than a couple of seconds and to calm down, end quote. Now, these divers are, quote-unquote, talking, but because their lips are wrapped around their mouthpieces, their words aren't always understandable. Patrick swam back down the narrow passage to Jari H and thought about yanking him forward in case he was stuck, but he was concerned about inducing panic. Patrick says, quote, I still don't understand what he was doing there. Was he caught? It wasn't until then that I noticed the line of his scooter was stuck under a big rock. Your scooter is stuck, I shouted. Jari tried to yank it free by force. That was the end of the scooter, I thought. I still didn't understand how distressed he was." After the scooter came off, Patrick moved out of the way. They were 364 feet or 111 meters below the surface. Divers learning to use closed-circuit systems train for a variety of emergencies. A common emergency is the failure of a rebreather to efficiently absorb the carbon dioxide exhaled by the diver, resulting in hypercapnia. Hypercapnia can also be self-induced if the diver panics and is no longer able to breathe regularly. In the deep, at a pressure far exceeding that on the surface, any excess physical stress may similarly cause the diver to breathe irregularly. Jari was calling for Patrick in the Pleura Cave, and Patrick says, quote, He shouted, give me the OC, the open circuit bailout gas. I knew then that the situation was serious. I handed him the mouthpiece from my cylinder. Jari took maybe 10 breaths and then switched back to the rebreather, end quote. This procedure was repeated two or three times, And after noticing that Jari had nothing in his mouth, Patrick placed a diving regulator over his mouth and pressed the purge button. But Jari inhaled water. It was all over. Patrick grasped at the rock wall and tried to pull himself together. As a rescue diver himself, he'd seen dozens of bodies in the water. People he didn't know who looked like dolls. He had seen dying patients in an ambulance, men and women he didn't know. But Jari was his friend. He clung onto the rock, realizing that he was breathing too fast. He had to calm himself down. Patrick looked at his dive computer, which measures the depth and time of a dive to determine the number and duration of decompression stops required for a safe ascent too direct of an ascent increases the risk of developing potentially fatal decompression sickness. The dive computer indicated that Patrick had to remain in the two degrees Celsius water for over 400 minutes before ascending safely to the surface. Seven hours. He stared at the screen in disbelief. Moments before the accident, the reading had been 120 minutes. How long had he stayed there? 15 minutes? 20 minutes? He could no longer swim back to tell the others what happened. The way was blocked. Patrick was already in danger. A dive that was supposed to last five hours would now take eight or nine hours. Even a minor equipment failure would probably cost him his life. He had a bailout system, but Jari had the oxygen cylinder. He had also offered some of his bailout gas to Jari. Patrick was horrified. He began swimming toward their planned exit. During his long ascent back to the surface, Patrick thought about the others, about what would happen when Kai, Vesa, and Jari Yu discovered the body of Jari H. Patrick was afraid that they would all die since Jari's body was blocking the path he thought that he would have to drive Jari's van back to Finland alone. He thought about after he returned, he would have to visit the homes of his four friends, going from one house in mourning to another. As these horrible events were occurring, Kai, Vesa, and Jari Yu were heading to begin their dive. One by one, they lowered themselves under the ice and began their underground journey. It was a little past two in the afternoon, and the group had agreed that the second team would depart two hours after the first team in order to ensure that the sediment possibly stirred up by Patrick and Jari H. had enough time to settle. Vesa entered the water first, followed by Jari Yu and Kai in the rear. Vesa had insisted on bringing five large cylinders for different depths as a precautionary measure despite warnings of Patrick and Kai that he might have to remove some of his equipment to fit through the narrow passages. Kai agreed to carry one of the additional cylinders to allow Vesa to move more freely. At a depth of roughly 410 feet or 125 meters, Vesa got stuck sliding through an opening less than three feet or one meter high. Vesa says, quote, I tried to go through in the wrong position even though we had talked about it in advance, I took off two cylinders before I realized how to dive through it." End quote. Then one of his fins got tangled in a guideline. Take off my fin, he yelled to the ones behind him, his voice sounding higher than usual due to the helium in the breathing gas. Jari Yu was able to disentangle the fin, but Vesa was annoyed Five additional minutes at this depth translated to nearly one additional hour underwater, and he hated performing decompression stops in cold water. The thought of having to dive back the same tunnel the next day began to aggravate him. They descended to the deepest part of the cave and passed the round plastic plate attached to the guideline. Shortly thereafter, Vesa heard a beep. He realized immediately that something was amiss. It was the distress signal of a breathing apparatus. Then, he saw the body of Jari H. Vesa knew he had to find a way around the body, and began to take off his gear to fit through the narrow opening. He remembers seeing a light appear from behind him, and shouting through his mask that Jari H was dead, and that he would try to find a way around, but it did not look good. What exactly happened next remains unclear. Kai has no distinct recollection of the events due to shock and nitrogen narcosis, but as he caught up with Jari Yu, something was apparently wrong. Kai tried to appease Jari Yu by pointing his light at the guideline. I asked what's the matter. He yelled something, but I couldn't make out what. Kai had yet to learn the fate of Jari H., but had Jari Yu seen the body and decided to turn back? Jari Yu was switching peculiarly between his closed-circuit system to his bailout system. Kai says, quote, I tried to calm him down by talking to him. I made sure that he wasn't trapped and that the bailout gas was on. I was flabbergasted. As the situation continued, I realized it couldn't be a failure of his rebreather, end quote. But there was nothing that Kai could do. And moments later, Jari Yu was dead. Kai realized that he had to swim on, and then he saw the body of Jari H, and next to it was the fin of Vesa, who was kicking fiercely to get around the body. Kai shouted to Vesa that Jari Yu was also dead. Let's turn back, he yelled. Vesa heard him, but dared to not turn back, due to the way back being much longer than the way forward. And Vesa realized that he was breathing too heavy, exactly what you shouldn't do at this depth. It seemed to Kai that Vesa was also panicking. He was concerned that Vesa would exhaust himself. Kai had to make up his mind quickly, whether or not to wait for Vesa to find a way through or to turn back. Vesa, Kai thought, was unlikely to make it. He presumed that Patrick had also died. Kai turned back alone. As Kai swam back towards the entrance, He was certain all four of his fellow divers had died. He weighed up his own chances of survival and determined that they were slim. He had two rebreathers, but only little additional oxygen. He continued to ascend steadily, irrespective of his dive computer indicating that he had to stop for an additional hour to decompress. He did a quick estimation and determined that he was more likely to run out of oxygen than to develop decompression sickness. Kai had had to skip a couple of decompression stops on previous dives, but never as many as right now. After reaching the air chamber, he decided to breathe the air trapped inside to conserve his oxygen. He would have an unlimited supply of air should he decide to stay in the chamber, but how many days would he have to stay down there? If the others were dead, there would be no one on the surface to alert the rescue workers. No one would know that he was alive and if a rescue team was alerted, it could take them a while to arrive. Although the air chamber was not far from the entrance, it was still at a depth of about 100 feet or 30 meters. But Kai decided to move on. Kai's underwater scooter broke down shortly thereafter, slowing him down considerably. He had estimated that he could make it to the entrance from the air chamber in about 15 minutes, but the journey took 45 minutes. Quote, I got really afraid that I would run out of oxygen. I swam the final stretch on a fluke. End quote. He knew that if the concentration of oxygen in his breathing gas is insufficient, the gas would become hypoxic, and he could gradually lose consciousness and ultimately drown. Kai performed decompression stops while trying to make himself as comfortable as possible. He removed his excess equipment and attached them to the guideline. The water was so cold. The cold swept over him as soon as he stopped moving and he had to keep swimming around in circles to stay warm. Whenever his fingers became cold, he raised his arms to allow the air in his dry suit to rise up to his fingers, trying to warm them up. Are you searching for a new true crime podcast to listen to? Then search no further than Military True Crime Addict. David Kokish walks you through a plethora of actual military true crime stories that have never been reported on by news outlets or media. Each episode features a detailed account of true crime that in some way relates to our military, veterans, and their extended families. There will also be an abundance of episodes on serial killers with a military background that you will not believe. Military True Crime Addict provides a voice to victims so you can hear their side of the story and it raises awareness for the terrible crimes and those most impacted. You don't need to know anything about the military to enjoy this podcast, so what are you waiting for? Go listen to Military True Crime Addict now. Back on the other side of the cave, Patrick could not ascend to the surface for several hours. What does one, who believes his friends are dead, do while waiting for several hours in 2 degrees Celsius water? Patrick thought about his family and drinking sprees with friends. He held onto the rocks on the walls as it was difficult to stay still in the dark water. He could use the remaining battery power of his underwater scooter to either light his way or as a thermal vest, but he could not do both simultaneously. It would either be cold or dark. Every now and then, he swam around in circles. Quote, I was so bloody scared none of them had made it out alive. End quote. He had performed long decompression stops before, but never before in such cold water. And unbeknownst to him, Vesa was making his own decompression stops not far behind him. Vesa stayed close to the guideline, occasionally lying still on the floor of the cave, waiting. When he was cold, he placed his hands against the wall and kicked. He had soon been under the water longer than ever before, for over six hours. During this time, he was constantly plagued by guilt for having been unable to help his friend, Jari Yu. He tried to guess what had happened and wondered whether Patrick had also died. Hours passed. He opened the valve of his last oxygen container and it was difficult to make out the pointer on the oxygen gauge. He was not sure how much oxygen he had left. He tried to think of something else. His spouse and three children were waiting for him back home. Patrick, Vesa, and Kai had recently only now ascended from a depth of 427 feet or 130 meters, Kai both on his way in and out. Their stay at such depths had far exceeded what they had prepared for, they were exhausted and running out of oxygen and rebreather filters. They were no longer able to perform the necessary decompression stops. Patrick says, quote, I thought if I could make it to six meters, I'm in the clear, end quote. Then, Patrick saw a light beneath him. He dove back down and saw that it was Vesa, and Vesa told Patrick that the others had turned back. Quote, It gave me strength, and I managed to make the stops nearly until the end, end quote. Patrick rose to the surface a little past 9 p.m., half an hour before it was safe. Instead of their planned five hours, his dive had lasted eight and a half. He sat down and waited for Vesa and rummaged through the rucksack his friends had left for something to drink. He had a vacuum-sealed sausage in the pocket of his dry suit, as he always had because these long dives work up his appetite. 20 feet or 6 meters below the surface, Vesa saw the light from Patrick's headlamp as he sat on the surface waiting for him. At a depth of 10 feet or 3 meters, Vesa's arms began to ache, and he presumed that this was a sign of decompression sickness. Patrick had waited for Vesa for an hour when he finally ascended to the surface, nearly 90 minutes before it was safe. After emerging from the water, Vesa's right knee began to ache another sign of decompression sickness. Three hours later, Kai emerged from the entrance of the cave to the pond. He aimed his light at the layer of ice above him and began to look for the dive hole. He knew where it was supposed to be, but all he could see was ice. The hole that they had cut in the morning had frozen shut. Even though it had frozen shut, it was only covered by a relatively thin layer of ice, He managed to break it and push his gear onto the ice and clambered out of the water. There was no sign of anyone, anywhere. It was half past one in the morning, and it was dark. His dive had lasted eleven and a half hours. He walked up to the van, his breathing apparatus still on his back. He tucked the apparatus into the boot of the vehicle, turned the engine on, and switched on the lights. Patrick and Vesa were waiting at the farm. After changing into dry clothes, they had returned exhausted to the pond and waited. Eventually, they had raised alarms with the Norwegian authorities, afraid that no one would climb out of the hole. It was nearly two in the morning when they noticed that someone had switched on the lights of the van. They ran to the van through the snow and found Kai lying on the floor. Kai had thought that he was the only one who made it out of the cave alive and had first assumed that Patrick and Vesa were locals. Never again, he said, would he put his head under the water. The police launched an investigation into the incident. Patrick, Vesa, and Kai were all interrogated, and Vesa's interrogation occurred while he was still being treated in a recompression chamber in Bergen, Norway the local authorities began to mull over how to retrieve the bodies of the victims from the cave. They decided to summon three experienced British divers to carry out the recovery operation. It was virtually the only alternative. In February, the divers descended into the cave and found the bodies, but were unable to dislodge them. They considered the operation too dangerous, and as a result, officials decided to leave the bodies in the cave imposing a diving ban and closing the area to visitors. After Norwegian authorities had decided to leave the bodies in the cave, Patrick sent a text message to some of his friends, asking if they wanted to participate, and everyone replied yes. Kai was just as eager to return to Norway, although he had suffered from anxiety and had yet to dive after the accident. Vesa, who was not allowed to dive due to decompression sickness, volunteered to assist from the surface. Although he had been treated in a recompression chamber, he was still experiencing symptoms of decompression sickness and still retained difficulties walking and problems with his reflexes. The major recovery operation had been kept a secret from authorities. Meanwhile, the preparations had been thorough. Divers would enter the cave from both entrances and leave 26 bailout cylinders inside the cave. An underwater habitat would be established roughly 3,280 feet, or 1 kilometer, from the pond to allow divers to rest while performing their decompression stops if necessary. It's well known that some of the world's most challenging peaks are dotted with the remains of mountaineers whose bodies could not be returned safely but the divers say that leaving bodies in the Norwegian cave would have been like leaving victims of a car crash by the side of the road. The recruited retrieval team knew the cave well, but this advantage was offset by the fact that these men knew the victims that they would be rescuing. How would they react when they came to the site of the accident and had to handle their corpses? Would they become upset and begin to breathe more quickly, or maybe make a mistake that would ultimately lead to another tragedy? In all, a team of 27 people descended the Plura on March 24, 2014. The two teams of support divers would work at the shallower levels at both ends of the cave, while Patrick, Sammy, and Kai would dive once again into the deepest section of the cave to raise the bodies up. Sammy, who was one of the members of the retrieval team, had actually been one of the instructors that trained one of the victims. He knew them well and he wanted to do anything to help with the retrieval of their bodies. As Patrick, Sammy, and Kai descended down past 280 feet or 85 meters, Kai decided to turn around. After he reached the surface, looking upset, he explains that he slept badly and is simply not in the right frame of mind for the operation. Patrick and Sammy had continued the descent alone. The dive team recorded this underwater dive, and in the gripping footage, the diver's light catches the jagged edges of the cave walls. You can hear the clanking of their gas cylinders and the intermittent whirring of the underwater scooters. The men's breathing and the bubbles released from their equipment and the occasional muffled command complete the soundtrack. In the footage, they pass the floating body of Jari Yu, Then, just 65 feet or 20 meters ahead, they encounter Jari H.'s body. Jari H. was exactly where Patrick had left him seven weeks earlier. Cutting his equipment away, they manage to release the body and negotiate it through the narrow part of the cave. Then, Patrick steers a dive scooter towards the surface, towing the body, while Sammy follows to help maneuver it. Patrick is the first to surface, eventually, in the steine Kuflige end of the underwater cave, where Vesa is waiting to greet him. Patrick says, quote, I've been thinking about this every single night since I've walked out of here. Last time, I didn't know whether to come back or stay down there. If we had done a practice run then, things would have been different. It was totally our own fault. End quote. The following day, Patrick and Sammy returned to retrieve Jari Yu's body. It proved to be a more difficult day than they had anticipated. This body was more buoyant and unwieldy than the first, and Sammy came close to a disaster when part of the cave had collapsed on him. At last, though, both victims were lifted up out of the cave system, where they were placed in body bags. The entire operation had taken 101 hours of diving time. The retrieval team held a long moment of silence after retrieving the bodies. The following afternoon, the team went to the local police station. Sammy says that he sensed the Norwegian police were pleased that they recovered the bodies, but, quote, they let us know that we had broken some rules and that they had to investigate that, end quote. It was another six months before the group was told that they would face no charges in their illegal dive. The Finnish president awarded Patrick the first class medal of the White Rose of Finland after he was nominated by his colleagues in the fire service. Rick Stanton, a British diver from the first aborted recovery mission, remains troubled by the events that occurred during the original dive. He says, quote, This incident happened, and then they made a film, and they all come out as heroes. But these two people should never have died in the first place, end quote. The film he's referring to is called Diving into the Unknown by director Juan Reina. Rick says that while people who have never been cave diving might think it's so dangerous that a few people will inevitably die, with proper training and planning, Accidents such as this should never happen to experienced divers. But despite everything, Patrick, Vesa, and Kai continue to enjoy the sport. For his film, Juan Reina asked the question, quote, Why do these guys who have families and everything, why do they go into these harsh places? It's not that they are just enjoying the thrill of risking their lives. There's more to it than that. It's their calling. It's very easy to judge them if you've never explored that world, if you've never been on a journey with them. That's why I wanted to take viewers on that journey. Although there are two victims here and a sad accident has happened, when you go through this journey with them, I hope people understand why they do this." The Plura Caves are now open once again. But nobody has made a new attempt at the traverse, but Sammy says it's only a matter of time for him. He says, quote, There are a lot of questions, the original questions, about where the cave goes and where the water comes from, and they are still there. And I am not afraid of the cave. End quote. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions about this week's episode, you can head over to our Instagram page at NarcosisPod or our Discord server. Shirts and coffee mugs are now available, and you can find the merchandise for sale on our website, narcosispod.com. I also set up a Patreon for the podcast, so for just $3 a month or the price of one coffee, you can vote on what to hear next, get exclusive updates, get a shout out at the end of the next episode, and get 10% off merchandise. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you all in a couple of weeks for season two.